From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Vanella Kernerbone. Hi, my name's Kelly and I play bass in a band called Camp Cope. What I wanted to be when I grew up, from like the age of nine, I wanted to be an acquisitions editor, which really freaked people out. Kelly Dawn Helmwick met guitarist Georgia Mack in a kitchen in Footscray, Melbourne. Now, Mack had been jamming with her friend, drummer Sarah Thompson, and when she heard that Kelly played bass, she nervously asked her to join in. In 2015, they formed Camp Cope, and the trio have not wasted a second of their time in the spotlight, using their newfound influence to launch the It Takes One campaign, which is aimed at stopping harassment of women at live music gigs. Kelly Dawn Helmwick said of the project, We have a platform now where people listen to us, so we want to give back to other people who don't have a stage to speak on. Kelly, take me back to the beginning before time no (laughs) really early when did you first pick up a bass guitar what's that story oh my goodness I've been playing music for as long as I can remember my dad's a musician so he played guitar my whole life for as long as I can remember I was begging him to teach me and I had to wait until my hands were big enough to fit around the neck of the guitar he wouldn't let me play until then and I think I was around 10 And I just wanted to be like him. I just wanted to play. And then he made me learn five songs on my guitar before he bought me my own. So I had to sit down and I practiced every day. And then when I started playing guitar and he bought me my own guitar, he bought me a Fender Squire. I started playing and he was like, you're not a guitarist, you're a bass player. And I was like, I don't want to play bass. That's boring. I want to shred and I want to move around on stage and be, you know, the main person. And he's like, yeah, but you're a bass player. And then for my 13th birthday, he got me a bass and I wasn't too happy about it. But then at high school, I started, you know, I would be like, oh, I have a bass. I could play bass. And then I just completely fell in love with it because I don't know, there's there's something really beautiful. I think there's something really beautiful about bass guitar and it is understated and Mm. you feel the space. And that's my favorite thing. Like as a bass player, you just find the space in the music and then you look what it needs and yes yeah I completely fell in love and he's right I am a bass player yeah he knew all along I, I have a suspicion he may have been right too so <laughs> when he said those five songs can you remember one of those songs that uh, he made you play like I got to pick the songs and I, ca- I came with him to with like a bunch of Blink-182 songs and he said I would be like all right what are the chords to this song and he went D A B minor G which was like always by Blink-182 and I was like all right well here's Damn It by Blink-182 what are the chords to this one and he's like oh that's also D A B minor G and I brought him like 10 Blink songs, but they all had the same chords. He made me learn 12 Bar Blues, even though I really didn't want to because it was really dorky. I feel like um, back when I was in high school, Miss Murder by AFI was really popular. Uh, I learned some Chili Peppers on bass, I remember. Yeah, lots of Blink-182. This is good. So so you picked up, you picked up the bass guitar. Blink-182 was a heavy influence, clearly. Oh, yeah. Um, what, what bands were you in before you started playing with Camp Cope? Oh, I was in lots of high school bands growing up, mostly just because no one else in high school played bass because it was dorky. And then after But you've killed that reputation now, haven't you? (laughs) Oh, well, I like to think so. I don't know. I'm a bit of a dork, though, so maybe I'm not doing it a favour. And then after that, I was in like a shoegaze band where I had like 10 pedals and it was really wanky and I really didn't know what I was doing, but I was making a lot of noise. After that, I was in a feminist scrams band with all women from like the western suburbs of Sydney and we came together and we were playing like uh, DOI venues around Sydney, like Jura Books and Black White Records and the Red Rattler and and, uh, like warehouses in Marrickville and things like that. And it was fronted by my friend who was Muslim and Indonesian and there was lots of 
like subjects in the music around that and things like that. So, so that was the sort of the influence, of course. Um, and then, and then you know, Camp Cope. And then Camp Cope. turns up. Yeah, and that's doing all right for you guys. Oh, yeah. it's yeah, yeah it's doing okay. It's all right. <laughs> but I mean, but the story about how you actually met and started mm. to play with the band—it's it's really sweet, and I believe it involves a tattoo. It does, which is always a good thing to involve. Yeah. Tell me about that. Okay, so I was meeting up with a friend. Uh, to get lunch in Footscray and then he texted me and he said oh, I'm gonna be a bit late because I'm just giving my friends some tattoos so I walked to his house and Georgia was lying on the kitchen table getting a tattoo of a snake eating itself which I know has a special name and she was lying on the table getting her tattoo which was probably like a needle duct tape to a 2b pencil and getting jabbed just into a, her a poke, yeah. yeah in this dirty kitchen so I was talking to her while she was getting the tattoo and we had a friend in common um, who just so happened to be the guitarist of the Scrams band that I was in. And she said, oh, you play music? What do you play? And Georgia's very intense and she doesn't have the most amazing people skills, so she's just like staring through your soul. <laughs> I was like, what is wrong with this woman? I don't know what I've done to upset her. She's like, what do you play? And I said, oh, bass. And she was like, okay. And that was all. And then, you know, I went and got lunch and then – But not a tattoo. No, I, I had a I had a tattoo by the same person in that same kitchen probably a few weeks prior. So we have that. But um yeah, and then I got home and my friend said, Georgia wants to know if you want to play in a band with her. So I sent Georgia a message and I said, Why are you too scared to talk to me? <laughs> what do you want? And then yeah, we jammed and, and then I met Tomo, who she had been friends with for a long time and it was really nice because I just moved to Melbourne and I had like barely any friends and then these two, we, we just feel like friend soulmates, you know. In that initial jamming, though, was it was it obvious that you guys were going to gel, that it was going to be a successful collaboration? Yeah, there was definitely something about it, I found, because I'd been in, yeah, a few different bands, and you know you can feel the ones that work, and, and my old band um, with the other women. I think there's something definitely I feel about being a, a woman and playing music with other women. There's something special in that, but then again with Tomo and Georgia, the, the way that I played my style, it just suited, like like I said, with the play, feeling the space, like we suited each other, all the, all our different styles and our sense of humour and our timing and things like that, in and out of music, it just all come, it all came together really nicely. And the, the styles, as you say, I mean, you came from a shoegazing background yeah. with a bit of, what is it, scram or something? A bit of scram, bit of scram. Of punk, and, yeah. then, and then literally as, as that moment kind of um, joins together, the sound itself, I mean, you, just, you guys have described it as kind of a pop punk mm-hmm. sound as Blink well. Blink 182, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, a little bit more lo-fi, and yeah. some, particularly oh, yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. But what is it about that sound that particularly appeals to you as an artist? What I really like about it is that it's very powerful like it's fun it is pop music and I think there's something about pop music with lyrics that mean something really important that helps people who might not necessarily want to listen to like music that's so political or so feminist driven it it draws them in and then they're hearing new things that they haven't heard before that's my favorite thing about it because you're you can reach such a broad audience if you make music that's palatable to everyone and it's fun it is fun but as you say i mean blink 182 these are these guy (laughs) bands they're all blokes yeah so so i mean you know to to be able to kind of i don't know maybe transcend that or or Mm. turn it on its head it must be kind of refreshing in some ways having grown up listening to that refreshing but also there's times where we felt like we didn't really fit in like there wasn't too many women making that style of music or there just isn't that many women making that style of music. So there was almost a scene there 
of of that genre and we didn't fit into it and then we didn't fit into I guess the more political based heavier music and we we're sort of in limbo we had to create our own thing and um there, there's been a lot of stress about that feeling a bit lost as a band about creating your own sound doing well, your own thing yeah well, it, it was a bit lonely <laughs> it is lonely when you're trying to kind of forge your own way mm. and, and and not sound like everybody else yeah. you, you're trying to do your own thing it can, yeah. it can be difficult Tell me a bit about the relationship that you had prior to that. And I don't mean with humans. I actually mean with a venue. You you used to go to this place called Black Wire Records that was a venue and a store and all this kind of stuff. Um, and sadly, it's it's closed down really recently. So so take me back. What What is it about that venue that was so pivotal for you? I used to go to Black Wire like in my school uniform after school, I'd like catch a train from Blacktown, which is like an hour away into, you know, the city to go there. And it was just so special in the way that it just welcomed everyone who didn't fit in anywhere else. And in, in some way like Sydney, where a lot of the venues are very, you know, they're, they're very fancy, like they're very, I don't know, cool. <laughs> Blackwire was the opposite of that. And it was definitely a family. And if you loved music and you're a good person, you're welcome. Didn't matter where you were from, what age you were, um, what style of music you liked, you you were welcome there and there was always a space for you. People would be like in five bands together and they'd all play Black Wire. Like, you know, you could get someone who was playing like three sets in one night in three different bands with someone else who was in a band with another person and it was all this this beautiful big family. And I, I got the I had the pleasure of living upstairs there for for a while. It was great. Just being able to walk downstairs and seeing the same people every week, but always bringing new people as well. It was like, I don't know, it was really special and it's over now, but I I don't doubt that there's more things happening and those people uh, like me who I was going there with when we were 16 are going to do their own things as well, being inspired by Tom who who had ran it for so long. It was one of those venues, and you mentioned the Marrickville kind of um, warehouses Mm -hmm. that sort of kicked off around 2011 or 2010 or something like that, these spaces that kind of emerged because of the lack of other spaces exactly. in Sydney. Yeah. So so I know you say that more will emerge, more mm-hmm. will grow mm-hmm. from those who kind of grew up in Blackwire like you did yeah. as well. But at that moment to lose spaces like that, what, what's your perspective on that? Because of this, the Sydney scene is difficult, as you know. It is difficult. Things like that, they'll just bring everyone closer together. And that's what I found. Like we, we've lost a few spaces when I lived here. Like um, there was a beautiful rehearsal warehouse called The Pits that we had shows in as well in Marrickville and we lost that but then in that like more people came together and then Red Rattler grew you know things like that so I guess when you lose a space it's the ones that are still there become so much more important that you can come together and make them better so hopefully we'll see places like the Red Rattler become more prominent in Sydney because it is a big beautiful space Um, so um, that's what I'm hoping and that's what I see in the future. The affinity though that you feel or Camp Cope feels with those types of venues that do come from a very um, DIY, a totally independent perspective as well, you know, having played at the Opera House and still coming from that history as well, what what does that mean to you to be independent, to be DIY and to hold that fast? I think it's really important for us to remain independent and to be why I guess to make as a statement for women as well to be like you can do this I think for us that that's really important so as women we're, we're managing ourselves we're our own agent we're like 
doing everything ourselves to show that we can and to show other people that we can. And regardless of gender, you can do it. You don't need big labels. You don't need fancy people that have worked in the industry for so long. You, you can really do it yourself if you believe in what you do and you work hard. You can do it. And we just want to keep putting that message towards people. Like like Blackwire, it, it was never a, ma- a venue that made lots of money. It was run by uh, volunteers. You know, it just held in there for years and years and years. But it's a space that everyone's going to remember for the rest of their lives. And it was the most important space in music for me so far. I mean, considering the success that Camp Cope have enjoyed, things are going to get busier. So to remain independent, to do it yourself, because you can, as you, as you just said, how hard is that going to get for you? I think the more that people know that we're independent and won't take any crap from anyone, the easier it's actually getting. Cause people, people are now becoming more aware, I guess, like, we're very vocal that we're independent um, and that we look after ourselves. So now we get people calling us about shows or talking to us about shows like that will just come to us directly. So that's easier in that sense. They sort of know what we're about now and it wasn't like, oh, okay, I need to speak to your tour manager. We're like, we don't have one. Right. <laughs> you Here's can speak to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we have each other. It does get stressful, but we all take care of each other. And that's, I guess, our physical and mental health comes before anything else. And that's like a pact that we made together at the very beginning. And it still runs true. That's first and foremost. And I think if, if that in life is first and foremost, then everything else will kind of follow suit because you're taking care of one another, you're taking care of yourself. And then you can kind of move forward and achieve things. Second. When you say you don't take crap from anyone, <laughs> what does it actually mean? What does that, that mean? That is a few, uh, a very Australian term. So, so what does it mean? I mean, we're just not going to let someone boss us around because they've got a fancy title or they think they're important. I guess it's like we walk into a festival or we work, walk into a space like the Sydney Opera House and we're equal with everyone. And that's what we believe. You're no better than me just because you've got a big job or you control a whole stage or your touring manager. You're not better than me. And I'm not better than you because I'm playing to more people or I'm not better than you because I've got a better spot in a lineup. You're not better than me because you're playing to 2000 people and we're playing to a hundred. I think if you like just focus on that equality and then no one can push you around and then you're not pushing anyone around and then you can really take care of each other. Take no crap. I like this. This, is, this should be the new hashtag guys. <laughs> hashtag take no yeah, crap. Absolutely. Um, how do you keep your day jobs considering? Well, we all have really supportive workplaces. I think that's what counts. That's what helps. I work a preschool and I wouldn't be able to do it if they didn't if they weren't flexible enough to me, be like, oh, I've got to go to Sydney next week. <laughs> and that instead of being like, well, you don't have enough leave. You don't have enough holiday pay. They go, oh, that's so cool. Where are you going? Like, what are you doing? You know, they're really supportive with education, especially like a community run place like that. They're really supportive of like arts and things like that. So I'm lucky. Tomo works for our label. So obviously they're very supportive of her. And Georgia works at the Reverence Hotel in Footscray, also like really big, important venue in Melbourne who are really supportive of the scene. So we're really lucky to have jobs that uh, appreciate our music and that's made all the difference. Mm. Can you see yourself or at a time when Camp Cope is the only thing that you do? I hope not. I love my job so much. It's very exhausting, but I always, my bosses are always scared. They're like, what if you get too famous and you have to leave? I was like, I would come and work for free even if I didn't have to. I, I don't know. I, I worked really hard to find a job that 
didn't feel like a job, like it was a second home to me. So, yeah, I do. I wouldn't want to leave. If I didn't have to do it, I'd go and do it for free. Let's talk about the recording of the album because it's something that a lot of, you know, it comes up a lot when you read interviews with you guys. Um, and talking about being tedious, most people talk about recording albums as being this kind of incredibly heady, long, torturous process, lots of different people kind of telling you what to do and how to make things sound. And yet yours was recorded in a day and a half. So, which, you know, it's pretty cool. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Why is it considered to be so unusual in your view and what makes that process and, of course, the results um, so, so great for you? I guess it's seen as unusual because when people work towards an album, it, like, has to be perfect. They, they work really hard. They're very meticulous about it. Because like, I guess an album is a representation of years of work and I guess that's why it's seen as a bit strange that we would – do it before we were even a year old and we'd take a day and a half. But to be honest, we were just scared out of our pants. That's why it took a day and a half. And we're not fancy either. So it was like, we've got our songs, we've got enough to make an album, let's just rip off the Band-Aid, record them, and then they're done, and then we have it. And so many people told us not to do it. Um, so many people were like, you need to wait until, you know, wait another year, write some more songs. These are your first couple of songs. Don't do it. Like, just wait, just wait. Lots of men telling us when I did my album, you know, I wish that I would have waited two years or blah, blah, blah. And, you know. So we didn't listen to that, obviously. And we just believed that we had good songs and we were starting to get this amazing fan base who are asking for recordings. So we're like, people want to hear it. We've got our songs. We've got our style. We're not going to – even our, our next album that we're working on, it's no change in style. Like it's nothing fancy. It's what we do up on stage. We've got like one pedal between two guitarists. Like me and Georgia, there's one boost pedal. Like there's nothing too fancy about it and it's always going to be that stripped back sort of thing and you don't need to take a lot of time to do that. We're just – it's very raw and it's very – we're just like this is us. Can you envisage that changing uh, as no. time goes on? No way. Mm. We've got – something that feels really good for us and works and like I said I guess it's all about a, a message as well like the music has a really important message and I don't want to be doing fancy stuff or straying too far away from the raw strip back style because it might take away from that I guess what I do on bass complements like George's voice and, and her like laid back guitar playing and then Tomo fills that space and I just can't imagine it changing too much. Maybe that's very close minded, I don't know, but we'll stick with it for a while. Yeah, no, I think I think you're doing all right. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, no worries. I know, I know you did my my stamp of approval. Seems to be seems to be working out just fine. move on to an initiative that was was incredibly important when when it came up and this is something that has been you know prevalent within venues forever you know and this is this women being harassed in venues not being able to find a space and you guys launched an initiative called it takes one to stop that harassment of, of women at gigs and it's really common as I said this is this is what we go through all the time so tell me though before we start talking about that campaign about that moment that specific show in Brisbane that launched this this campaign campaign what happened so in Brisbane we had I guess it was a, a first lot of like really big audience outside of our hometown and lots of people we didn't know and things started to get a bit rough like you could say looking down people were looking uncomfortable people were like pushing there was people jumping up on top of people and so Georgia just called it out immediately like I was looking at Tomo and Tomo was looking at Georgia and we were just like we've got to stop this this looks terrible this is not what we're about 
And then we called it out and got that person removed. And it was actually the audience around them showing us that they were uncomfortable. The audience around them, like turning around and yelling at these people, mostly women turning around and being like to these men, stop. You know, you are making us super uncomfortable. That drew our attention and then we could help them and then get that person removed. And then everyone had a good time once they were gone. And then when we talked about it, we were like, okay, we're super vocal about safety at shows. We obviously have a very feminist agenda. Like what makes it think if the, that that's okay at our show? If this is happening with us, it's got to happen everywhere. If it's happening here, then it's definitely everywhere. It's not just heavy shows. It's everywhere. And then that's what sparked the conversation and we started talking about what we could do to make safer spaces. Tell me about that campaign. Just mm-hmm. tell me what happened basically. Describe with the it for ca- me. With the whole campaign, uh, I was feeling really bummed out about what happened because you feel really responsible. And you're like, people had a terrible time at our show and we made that show and that could have been someone's worst night of their life. You don't know what happened. Um, but then there was also a positive where our audience – banded together, especially the women at the front, because we asked them to be there. They banded together and they didn't take any crap. (laughs) You know, they stood up for themselves. So there was that positive there that sat with us. And we're like, how can we use that? And then uh, other, we started being really vocal about it. So other bands who are our friends started coming to us and being like, man, this is happening at our show too. How do you guys fix that? What do you say? What can we do? And then there was our friends um, had a tour, Luca Brasi and the Heartaches, and there was some really serious, like, violent stuff going on at their shows. And that was really hit home to us as well because they're similar style to us, similar crowds. And I remember lying in Sydney airport with, like, a scarf over my head being like, what can we do? Do we just stop playing music because this is so heavy? Like, to people do do this at our shows, it makes me not want to be there or play. And then I had a shower and I sat down in the shower and I was like, I've got it. I wonder if anyone would like come together and work on this. And I texted Tomo and I said, is this crazy? But I want to bring everyone together and just create a message to tell people that if they're going to do that, not to come to the shows and to empower the audience as well. That was really important. So to reinforce the people who want to make positive change that they can and to tell the people who think that it's okay to do that, to just not come because we don't support it. You know, We're not fans of you even if you're fans of us, if you do that sort of thing. What's the impact of that campaign, It Takes One, been so far? Have you seen uh, like a, a remarkable change in the attitudes in, in not only in your shows but what you've heard anecdotally from your friends? Definitely in our shows we've seen a huge change. They're so calm, well-behaved. We're in Hobart and they put a barrier up at our show and we said, well, we don't, we don't need a barrier. Uh, and they were like, oh, Hobart gets a bit crazy. The people here, they're a bit <laughs> wild. You might need a barrier. And we're like, honestly, our audience don't do that. And if they do, they leave. So it's okay. And the, of, of course, the audience just like stood there and danced nicely and it was fine. There's been change for like the festivals that we've played with as well. So we Yeah, were really, they were really supportive at really the Laneway Festival. That's right. They, they, you say, hang on, so they, they, they put up a hotline. Yeah, they... They contacted us and they said that they really liked the campaign and they wanted to make a more like festival themed one because of the stuff that had happened in other festivals and falls and stuff like that and things that have been happening in festivals that we know forever. As a punter, as a young tiny female, I never went to festivals. 
when I was a kid, my dad said, that's not a place for young women, which is terrible because how is it fair that a young woman can't go and enjoy that many bands and experience that? And so many of us still stand at the back, stay where you can't see, you can't get down the front. Exactly. And it's not fair. And I always felt that as a kid that how is that fair that my brother gets to go to big day out, but I can't because it's not safe. But people would, people were dying. So we were really nervous about playing festivals. So when Laneway um, contacted us, I was really stoked. And, and then I talked to them about making the hot one and we worked together on making that happen. And I think the feedback that we got from people who attended the festival, it made a, it made a really positive change. So It's really great to hear. I've got to say it's amazing. Um, and, 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 th- and also it leads to what we've already mentioned, the words Girls to the Front, which yeah. was a, a campaign that pretty much or a concept that launched a long, long time ago. So, so tell me about what that is if we haven't heard of that. That's, a, I guess, an old saying from way back um, with like the riot girl movement, uh, giving girls the confidence and telling them that they deserve the space around them. And I guess we're, we're just trying to bring that into like, I guess, now in 2017, we don't want, we, it's not like we specifically want just girls, you know, in our audience. That's not true. We just want everyone to feel safe equally. So it's like, yeah, we've all been women who were like, we'll just stand at the back because that looks so dangerous. And we really believe in that because we've experienced it personally. So we're like, you know what? We're women on stage and we want to use this opportunity to give people who haven't had the opportunity to feel safe at a show before. This is now. This is for you. It's for, you know, queer people and women and non-binary and trans. It's like our time. It's our time to feel comfortable. And as you say, it was something that kind of was launched by, you know, Kathleen Hanna. You mentioned Bikini Kill, of course, before. So how did you guys find out about that? We're always compared to bands like that, I guess, just being all women. But our inspirations of being an all-female band comes from other people who have made that possible. Like it took me going to Blackwire and seeing a band called Mere Women, who we still play with today. I remember seeing Kat and Amy who are in that band and thinking, I need to join a band. If they can do it, look at them. They look so cool. If they can do it, I can do it. And then that gave me the confidence. And I think bands like that gave us the confidence to play music and I hope that we can do that in the future for more women as well. Do you see an end inside to harassment of women at gigs where that is that safe space is actually available for all? I hope that spaces become more safe, but I think it's it's not an issue that is specifically just in music. It's like a, a societal problem. As a society women experience harassment and they're not treated equally yet. And until society changes, we're not going to see it trickle into areas like art, music, the workplace, things like that. That's what needs to change. Everyone's attitude needs to change. And then it's going to affect the subcultures from that. But I, I can see and already feel people not taking it as the norm anymore. Like it's not okay to get drunk and abuse someone at a show. Like people are watching, people are paying attention and there are consequences now that were never there before. And when you have, well, you set pretty clear standards (laughs) and you have a philosophy and an ethic that says do not do that and it comes from people like yourself who do have a voice, that can trickle down into other parts of, of their lives in their society, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so you have, you have that power, I guess. Yeah, and we always want to use that power, and I guess that's the, that's as well a really important part of our band. Like if people like us aren't feeling comfortable at our show, what's the point? You and you want to feel comfortable when you go to shows. Exactly. I don't feel comfortable when there's men shouting. And, like, we were playing a festival, and as we were setting up, there was a group of men like shouting at us and I just said stop or we're really not going to play like you need to leave or we're not going to do it have you stopped before um we haven't had to stop mid-set 
we've paused before starting until someone went to the back, but that's as far as we had to go. I like this. This is good. <laughs> this is really good. I We're love not this. scared to stop. <laughs> this is amazing. You talked before about the physical and mental health of you guys, the, the trio, as being paramount. That comes first. Yeah. And, of course, there's a cost, I guess, to being outspoken as, as a group, Camp Cope, about, about you know, social issues. Uh, we've been talking about feminism and women's women's rights, I guess, as yeah. well, um, health issues. And I know that there are a lot of people kind of write into you and, and, and as a result, because you're outspoken and you talk about this, that you get a lot of kind of information from other people that can be kind of pretty heavy, I suppose, where yeah. they talk about their relationship with you as a band and and share with you so what what is that like for you to read that to deal with that it is hard it, it has been a, a thing that we've had to be really conscious about because we're not trained professionals when it comes to mental health like we can tell our own stories and we can tell people about how we feel and how we deal with it but when people come to us with really heavy situations it does take a toll I guess you put yourself out there physically and mentally when you play and then for people afterwards to come and talk to you about that it, it can be really hard we don't discourage it of course like because it is really important to talk about and the stigma behind like trying to hide these things um, we don't want people to feel like they they can't talk about it but I guess what what we hope is that we can provide more like if we can lead people towards the places that they can deal with it more healthy than talking to us about it. So we're working towards that. That's that's something that's really important to us. If someone brings something of concern to us, trying to find the best place to lead them and direct them to. Mm, yeah. So you just have to be careful with your the way you communicate, I suppose. Yeah, and, you know, we're just humans as well. <laughs> we don't, you know, we're just as lost as the people that are talking to us as well. This is the way that we deal with it is through music and that doesn't, you know, we're not professionals, so... Can I ask a question that you've been asked a thousand times before? Yeah. <laughs> Did you expect it to happen so quickly? Oh, the no. Success? Oh, no. No, no, no. We never expected to play the Sydney Opera House. I don't know. <laughs> it's very surreal. Every time we get up there and we have an audience singing back to us, I was like, how do they know the words to our songs? Why do they care about us? Don't they know that I'm just like a girl that would sit at the back of Blackwire and <laughs> wish that she was in a band I don't know <laughs> yeah no we never expected it it's still terrifying everyone last night asked us oh, how do you feel you're about to play the opera house and I go terrified out of my mind I never was prepared mentally as a human to do this I don't know but it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's amazing. So you have two bass guitars now, three, four? I have two. Yeah. Right, so you backups. The same. Yeah, I have two exactly. I have a, a Fender Mustang short scale um, and I had one that's like vintage from the 80s and I recently got a new one because I was too scared to tour with the vintage one anymore. So I hope to have 10 one day. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be amazing. You, you mentioned your father before t teaching you how to play 12-bar blues and yeah. you had to do that before you, you learn anything else. Your style your, of bass playing is really super melodic Thank and it's you. fun. Thank you. Is it other than your, your father that you mentioned earlier, is there anyone else that kind of filters into your set of influences? Um, I'm really inspired by Peter Hook of Joy Division. I think he has a really interesting way to play. And what I really liked about the way that he played was that there's a story that he had to play so high on his bass because where they practiced, like this warehouse that they practiced, if he didn't play high, he couldn't hear himself because of the, the frequencies. And in that way that I was like, I just play this way because it's comfortable for my tiny hands. Like to sit high on the fretboard and high on the strings, it feels more comfortable to me. And like 
they're the riffs that I write in the head and then in my head and then I can just bring them up. It, circumstance shapes the way that you play as much as like creativity and that's what I really like about Peter Hook. But I guess definitely that kind of like post-punk bass and that's why I guess people think it's really unusual because it is for this sort of genre. But um, yeah, I'm just going to stick with it. People have told me so for so long that it's wrong. You play wrong. You play like a guitarist. You ever? Someone told me that the way that I played was feminine, which is really weird. I thought I found I was like well, I am a girl, like like better. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I really like is it, it's a testament to if you do something differently and people criticize it, don't feel bad. There was times where I was like, maybe I do play wrong. And then I just really stuck with it and now people are nominating me for bass awards and people are telling me that like the way that I play inspires them and I'm really glad I stuck with it and yeah, I'm a bit strange and I play it weird and I probably have a very strange technique and it's different. But it's yours. But it's mine. And it works perfectly well. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I was interesting, because your father said, you know, you can't touch this until you're 12 years old. So (laughs) he was obviously trying to teach you the right way, but you just went, I'm going to do whatever works correctly for my my physique for my hands and for the way I want to listen to that sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he always said that I had a really nice, like, sense of rhythm, which is why he said I should be a bass player. He's like, yeah, you fill the space really nicely. And that's something that he always said, like, you can hear something and then you find what's missing with it and you can add to it. And I feel like that's important for bass players. That's their job. So he saw that, that I had a really strange sense of rhythm and that it would not really work with guitar, but I should play bass. And I'm glad that he saw that. That's fantastic. Last year you wrapped up with a new single. It's called Keep Growing. Yeah. Okay, so how will Camp Cope keep growing into the future? Oh gosh. I don't I don't know. We're just we're just riding with it. I hope like we can do more things like it takes one. Um that's super important for us. It's like we have an ever growing platform and we really want to use that to give more people like us a voice because that's what's gonna change music and that's what's gonna make it better. Artistically, I don't really know. We're getting more confident. I think that song lyrically for Georgia is so mature compared to the previous album. You can hear how much she's grown in that song. It's like a song about self-love where before there was lots of self-doubt. And to me, when she came with that song, I felt it and we all felt it. It's very cathartic. That song, it was written after like a two-week long tour, our first really long tour, and it changed us. And then that song embodies that for us. So, yeah, I think be- being more comfortable in ourselves and, yeah, self-love and using that self-love to get other people to love themselves and give them the confidence is what how we're going to grow more. I love this. This is fantastic. <laughs> I'm feeling the self-love now. It's perfect. Um, Kelly Dawn Helmrich, thank you so much from Camp Cope. It's, it's wonderful to meet you and to, and to hear about the process and, and the music for Camp Cope. You guys are great. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be at the Sydney Opera House. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. The season features guests from the Vivid Live program and it's hosted by me, Fenella Kernerbone. Produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hearway. The music mix is from Evan Williams and we were recorded by Josh Craig. Mastered by Cullum Jensen-McKinnon and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. 